Bienvenidos a todos. You are listening to the Paseo Podcast, where we highlight stories by, from, and about the Puerto Rican community. My name is Joshua Smezer de Leon, and I want to thank you for downloading this episode. If you are listening to this on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are streamed, give this podcast a like and subscribe to it. It makes a world of difference. We started this podcast as a way to bring attention to the diverse and vibrant stories that make up the Puerto Rican communities here in Paseo Boricua in Chicago and around the world. From La Isla to the diaspora, we hope you enjoy what you hear. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Paseo Podcast. Keep up with us at Paseo Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. If you want to follow me, I'm at JSDeLeon on Twitter. That's at J-S-D-E-L-E-O-N on Twitter. You can also pitch a story or volunteer with the podcast by reaching out to us on our website, paseomedia.org. To watch the interview portions of our episodes, check out our YouTube channel. Just type in Paseo Podcast and we'll pop right up. While you're there, like our videos and subscribe to our channel. Help us get to 100 subscribers, y'all. We'd love to see the support. For this week's episode, we welcome to the show NBC News and NBC Latino reporter Nicole Acevedo. In the past, Nicole has published stories for MSNBC, Telemundo 47, and NPR's Latino USA. She's done a lot of reporting on Puerto Rico, so we're going to talk to her about her recent reporting on two opposing bills in Congress that are trying to address the issue of Puerto Rico status, and we'll also talk to her about her personal journey navigating the journalism field. But first, let's jump into some news items. As I mentioned last week, it's Women's History Month, and we've had the chance of interviewing some amazing Latinas on the show. One way we're honoring this month is by highlighting a badass Puerto Rican woman every week. Last week, we highlighted Felicitas Mendez, a civil rights activist and pioneer in the desegregation of United States public schools. This week, we're highlighting Mariana Barsetti. Thanks to information I've gathered from the Puerto Rican Cultural Center here in Chicago, Remezcla, and the Weekly Journal. Mariana Barsetti is believed to have been the woman who crafted the first Puerto Rican flag, an earlier version of the one we know today, and known to many as the Bandera Revolucionaria. She was actually named Brazo de Oro, or Arm of Gold, because of her sewing abilities. She's kind of like the Betsy Ross of Puerto Rico, if you only know United States history. Barsetti was an independence movement leader in the 1860s and a key protagonist of El Grito de Lares, which we've talked about on the show in the past. Uh, but for, for those listening for the first time, quick rundown. It was a revolt in the town of Lares that declared the first Puerto Rican Republic on September 23rd, 1868. If this is your first time hearing about El Grito de Lares, I highly recommend you do some research, do some Googling. It is a fascinating part of Puerto Rican history. She was arrested and released a few months later uh, after the revolt. Uh, she was granted amnesty from the Spanish government. She wasn't just some random spectator either in this movement. She was the leader of the Lares Revolutionary Council. And uh, in 1903, Barsetti eventually died in Anasco due to poverty. Despite the ending to her life, her efforts to liberate Puerto Rico from Spanish rule represented a chapter of nationalist pride and a notable act against imperialism. If you're wondering where that original Puerto Rican flag slash Grito de Lares flag is currently housed today, um, this flag that was raised in Lares during the pro-liberation movement 
can actually be found today in the University of Puerto Rico. And that's a little bit on Mariana Brasetti, uh, amazing woman in her own right, an important part of Puerto Rican history worth knowing. Uh, this is only a snapshot into who she was, but I highly recommend, uh, again, just doing some research, learn about her. Um, she's definitely a Boricua worth knowing. Moving on here, normally we highlight like two to four stories to start the show. Uh, this episode's a bit longer than we normally put out, so I'm just going to highlight one story that came across my Twitter feed this past week. Um, so I'm just going to share that one story for today before we get into our interview with Nicole Acevedo. So this all started after a Netflix internal diversity audit determined the streaming service needs more Latinx programming. So in response to that, creator of La Borinquena, Edgardo Miranda Rodriguez, took to Twitter to shoot his shot and asked Netflix to produce a TV series about his La Borinquena series. On Twitter, he said... At Netflix, let's talk about producing a La Borinquena TV series starring an all-Latinx cast shot on location in Puerto Rico using Act 27 so that we can invest the 1.9 trillion projected buying power of Latinx people by 2023 on a show that represents us. I think this sounds like a great idea. Quick side note for anyone wondering what the heck Act 27 is. Act 27, also known as the Puerto Rico Film Industry Economic Incentives Act, was passed in 2011. It gives tax exemptions and tax credits to film and TV production companies. La Borinquena is the first independently Latinx superhero comic book series to be made part of the permanent collection of the Smithsonian National Museum of American History. It's an independent property as well, so it's a good business decision for Netflix since they wouldn't have to deal with all the baggage of working with a major publisher or studio. It's also the only intellectual property directly connected to philanthropic work in Puerto Rico. Now, I know what you may be thinking, can one tweet really make this a reality? Well, this push for a series has gotten some A-list support from Boricua Rosario Dawson. Rosario actually showed her support for this in a tweet that read, can't wait to see what Afro-Latina actress will play her, pitching myself to direct the pilot. Again, I think this would be a great idea, especially with Rosario directing the pilot. That's such a, I mean, I would be right there ready to go first day of streaming. Uh, big fan of the comic book series. So to see like a live action TV series would be pretty freaking dope. Um, but the reality is most studios are run by predominantly white men who decide what to produce. So in many cases, if something doesn't resonate with them, it doesn't get a green light. So there might be a bit of an uphill battle here. Uh, but again, this is uh, an opportunity that Edgardville saw. Uh, if the Netflix audit shows that they need more Latinx programming, I mean, you got a really good property in La in Kenya. So hopefully this breaks through and gets picked up by Netflix. I know Edgardo has been lighting up his Twitter feed with one good point after another as to why it should be. I know I would watch it again. Uh, I can't stress that enough. I hope you would too. Uh, but let us know at Paseo Podcast on social media if you'd be interested in a La Borinquena series and if you have a Boricua in mind to play the lead role. Also, let us know what you think of today's interview once you're done listening to this episode. Speaking of which, here's our interview with Nicole Acevedo. Smooth segues aside, let's jump into the interview. All 
Our guest today is Nicole Acevedo. She is a reporter at NBC News Digital. She produces features and enterprise stories for NBC Latino and breaking news for NBCNews.com. If you're in the Puerto Rican community, which many of our listeners are, yes, I'm talking to you. You've probably read one of Nicole's articles. Um, we're definitely going to talk about a couple of those. But before we get into the nitty gritty of, of her background and, and her reporting, uh, Nicole, welcome to the Paseo podcast. How are you today? Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Uh, it's not every day that you get to talk Puerto Rico with fellow Puerto Ricans, so I'm very excited. So, okay, well, we're excited to have you. What should our audience know about you? I started with NBC News Digital um, form like formally as an employee um, in 2018, and it was really, you know, in the midst of the Hurricane Maria recovery hmm. and literally was brought in to cover that recovery especially within NBC News Digital, we have a vertical called NBC Latino that is completely dedicated to covering Latino communities in the U.S., in the Caribbean, and in Latin America. The editor there knew that the TV cameras were going to go away once the immediate emergency was over. But, you know, with a disaster of that magnitude, mm -hmm. you know, we, we, couldn't, we couldn't just move on. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I had just graduated from finishing my master's. I was one of the people that, uh, helped launch the Spanish language journalism, um, master's at CUNY. It's a bilingual program. So right after I finished that, I started on, on NBC Latino covering the, the recovery of, of Maria in Puerto Rico. And I was like literally toggling between. Puerto Rico and New York City, where, where I'm based, and then stayed, have been have been there um, doing, you know, the same work, obviously reshifting the focus on Puerto Rico as things continue to happen because mm -hmm. it's never a dull day in Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, covering Latino communities um, in the middle of the pandemic, mm -hmm. where they have been disproportionately affected as well. I'm glad you said that uh, it's an ever-shifting narrative, uh, all the stories that are coming out of Puerto Rico. We are as NBC News, you know, a publication that's basically U.S. mainstream. Mm -hmm. And you still need to figure out how to write these things in a way that someone that doesn't know anything about Puerto Rico can understand. Mm -hmm. But the Puerto Ricans that live these issues every day can also understand and gain something new. You know, that's something mm -hmm. that I'm always striving to do. Like, I, my hope, I don't know if I always accomplish this, but is that the person, whoever is reading, you know, ends up learning something that they didn't know before they started reading that article. I do want to back up a little bit. Definitely want to ask you about like your newsroom experience, why you decided to go and get into journalism. But backing up a little bit, you said uh, you were living in Puerto Rico before you came over to the, to the mainland. What part of Puerto Rico is your family from? I was born in Coupe, which is a neighborhood in San Juan, the capital. Uh, for the most part, grew up in that area, moved a lot, moved a, around a lot. I lived in Caguas, in Curabo, in Bayamón. Uh, but, you know, I always was in Coupe because uh, I always stayed in the same school. I, I used to be a ballet dancer, so I danced there. Uh, my abuela lives there which is important. Yep. <laughs> mm -hmm. Every time after school, I would go to Abuela's house and then to my ballet training and repeat. Yeah. Um, so in, in Coupe, and then when I graduated high school, 
I I moved to Syracuse, New York, um, which is in upstate, yeah. in upstate New York, and it's a freezing cold place. Oh my goodness! <laughs> and I had never seen snow in my life. I had never been like a cold place, so it was quite, quite the the shift. Getting a bit more into into your background, um, so just just curious to hear from you, like. Of all the professions to get into, I mean, why journalism? Why did you decide to become a journalist? Well, when I started considering journalism, I was in Puerto Rico in mm -hmm. high school. I was debating whether to stay or to go, like many young Puerto Ricans do mm -hmm. um, growing up in the island. And at the same time, I was trying to figure out what the hell to study. While I was in, in school, um, I remember our school started, like, tried to start a, a little newspaper, a little school newspaper. And as part of, like, that effort, I attended, like, multiple, like, one or two summits uh, about student journalism. So that was, like, besides, like, ballet and dance. That was the only, the only other thing I was exposed to that seemed like a viable career option. And I liked it. I was like, I enjoyed this. I could see myself doing it. And I and that was it. I was like, I'm going to apply in, to study journalism. I'll give it a year. And if I like it, I'll stick with it. And if not, then I'll change majors. Hmm. Um, but no, when I, when I started, I, I got into broadcast journalism. So originally wanted to do TV journalism and I got to Syracuse. They had a, a Spanish language TV show, a news TV show and started there because my English was, you know, I could defend myself, but for broadcast purposes, it still needed some work. Mm -hmm. So I, I wanted to figure out if I liked this profession. So I started doing news in Spanish in, in central New York and loved it. The one thing I always knew I wanted to do was to do it bilingually. Like I often was asked, oh, so are you going to go to like, you know, work at Telemundo or are you joining like a English language, like a mm -hmm. local news station? And And that question always like made me uncomfortable because mm -hmm. I didn't like that I was that it was an assumption that I needed to make a decision or choose one or the other when I'm both at the same time and I I don't know I saw my bilingualism as as such like an access key to so many communities and so many stories and give me so much flexibility in what I wanted to do in journalism what is it like being in a newsroom? I know now with the pandemic, a lot of stuff's happening remotely, but oh, before that. Oh, I miss that, it so much. Yeah. It's so lonely um, just doing news in, in your living room. I mean, it depends on the day. Sometimes you have slow news days mm -hmm. and, you know, you're just everybody sitting in the newsroom and like, you know, sort of waiting and monitoring things. When you're in a newsroom, you have a bunch of TV screens everywhere. Uh, you have, you know, systems of communication, especially in a company as big as NBC, mm -hmm. that you have so many reporters all over working on things at the same time. We try to streamline things um, so we don't have like multiple reporters working on one thing mm -hmm. and, and stuff like that. Or maybe somebody's like, hey, I got this. 
but I'm not able to write it. Can you write it? So it's mm. like, it, there's a lot of cross collaboration that, yeah. that happens that way. Um, but when it's a hectic news day, which is, which has been most days nowadays, you know, it's, it's, you you almost have to be prepared for the unexpected. It almost sounds like a very like hyper fast paced environment where you just have to be agile and be ready to pivot at the you know at the drop of a well a breaking news story. Part of that balancing act is you know on a year like 2020 and yeah. probably this year as well. You know, there's so many things happening that mm-hmm. sometimes we would we would get to the meetings and we'd be like oh my God, like we need to cover all these things, but we literally do not have time to do all of this. And you're literally picking and choosing, Mm -hmm. you know, what to dedicate time, what to do long form. And and a lot of times it's long hours because to be able to meet the demand of of the moment, you know, Mm -hmm. with all these big news events happening at the same time, a lot of times that means, you know, eight, eight, nine, 10, 12 hour days. Um, mm. or, or sometimes, you know, you, you're just on call, um, and have to jump in at certain times. So, so it definitely, it definitely, you try to compartmentalize as much as you can and, and try to guard your free time as much as you can, because if you're not rested, you're, you're not going to perform as well. Mm. But but at the same time, you know, sometimes just the moment needs you to to step in. When you're in a newsroom and there's a bunch of really big stories, there's only so many reporters, only so many hours. What is a standout story for a newsroom to kind of put it up on the priority list? I mean, it would it would be you sort of try to gather what the news of the day is. Mm-hmm. So sort of like the biggest so even when you have simultaneous big stories, you still try to figure out which one is the biggest one hmm. and prioritize that. And sometimes see if within that story, there are sort of storylines, side storylines that connect to it mm-hmm. and those get assigned. And then, you know, that's that's sort of if, you know, you're working on a macro level in mm-hmm. a newsroom. But in a newsroom like NBC News, that we have sort of smaller teams working, you know, at the same time that the big teams are working, you know, it's an effort to try to not to not miss a lot of stuff. When, when last week, when the Puerto Rico stuff happening, there was other stuff happening in Congress. There were billion things happening. But as a section that's dedicated to Latino populations, you know, covering those issues and serving those audiences. You know, we get to determine, okay, within this scope of things, you know, what what are some of the biggest stories? Now we have time to to tackle this. Or we think that if we wait, it's gonna be too late. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you just push through and make it work. Yeah. So so it's it's pretty much an editorial thing, just getting having great team members that have a lot of experience and, and expertise in certain topics. You know, you also wanna leverage your level of expertise. That mm-hmm. was a advice that I got when I was starting as a baby reporter um, was, you know, try to become an expert in a topic to the point that when somebody needs you to write or talk about that, they come to you mm. instead of you trying to chase, you know, where to get published or where to get, 
you know, a space and at airtime or whatever, you know, whenever something happens in that topic and people know you're the go-to person, you're the go-to journalist. Um, so for instance, when anything happens in Puerto Rico, usually I just do it. Yeah. <laughs> I just drop everything I'm doing and, and do it. And obviously, obviously constantly thinking about longer term stories mm. um, that need a little bit more time, sometimes a few weeks, even a month. Yeah. So what would you say? I mean, you mentioned like there, there's those 12 hour days, 12 plus hour days. What would you say an average work week is like for you? I, I try to keep it to 40, you know, like a normal yeah. person. I yeah. try not to go crazy. Um, but, you know, certain days, maybe in certain weeks, maybe it may be double that. Mm-hmm. It may be, I don't know, 60 hours. So it really, it really depends. And and really try try to the best of my ability to keep it at 40. I don't count them because if I do, I may go crazy. <laughs> <laughs> if I realize I, I most 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 times most weeks I'm working more working less yeah um you know sometimes you do need a break you know if if you're feeling like you know your body especially last year with the pandemic mm-hmm. it was very draining mm-hmm. um covering you know especially the disproportionate impact on in Latino communities mm-hmm. you know it it, it takes a toll on you because you're talking to people that have lost family members that are that don't have work that are struggling to pay everything and it's like every week all the time and and you know you're doing everything that you can to represent those stories in the best way possible and also in a timely manner it you know it it can it can a lot of times become okay I need I need a minute I need I need a day. I need a half day and you know as you become a more experienced journalist you start understanding those limits and understanding when to ask for a break mm-hmm. you know obviously you're not gonna ask for a break if, if it's a breaking news day you you do the job and then you know set set aside a different time to either process that breaking news and and you know um mm-hmm. get 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 resting day get, get resting time on a different day um, so I think that that the balancing act, each person becomes better as they continue to to gain more experience in in the profession, for yeah. sure. I mean, being in a newsroom, at least the newsrooms that I've seen, everybody looks pretty close together. So, mm-hmm. and there's a lot going on. So my <laughs> my like big question, like, how do you write? How do you focus on writing when there's all there's you got TVs around, news is happening. Well, How's it happen? What's, what's the lowdown? How do you do that? Mm-hmm. Writing, writing in the newsroom is way easier than writing in the field. In the field, a sure. lot of times uh, there's way more yeah. stuff happening. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I find that to be more challenging than when I'm writing in the newsroom. And, and actually, now that I've been working from home, it I'm, I'm feel like even like a little bit thrown off of. Uh, of my groove i'm like it's too like silent and like weirdy here where are the tv cameras where are the all the the screens that we have with all the the tickers and all the information coming up um but you yeah you get you get used to it especially in the 
I remember in the beginning, I was, I always felt like I was late. Like I was always taking a lot of time and I was like, oh my God, like they're going to kill me because I'm taking too long with this story. Mm -hmm. And now I literally find myself, okay, breaking news. Literally the first thing I do, okay, relax. Because like my mom used to say, tienes que hacerlo con calma, pero sin pausa. Mm -hmm. You have to be calm, but not pause along the way mm -hmm. so I, I that's usually how I approach it and I try to be very sort of tonal vision sort of focused mm -hmm. um, if someone gets too loud in the newsroom because it happens sometimes sometimes there's some people are talking or something happens and you just shut them up hey <laughs> I'm, in, I'm on deadline what are you doing and then you keep going. <laughs> uh, do you have, uh, I'm this totally a stereotype here, but uh, I'm going to say it anyway because this is how I grew up. But do you have like a dedicated chancleta at your desk to just like whip out at somebody Man. if they're causing a ruckus? I hadn't even thought about it. That might not be, I might scare somebody. You might scare somebody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you might get a lawsuit. Maybe not do I that. Yeah. Let me do it with other Latinos. Eso, yeah, 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 like yeah. If, 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 if it's like another Latino, yeah. I'll be like, come on. Yeah, guys. yeah. But, <laughs> it's understood. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I don't even remember what my desk looks like. I left it wow. in March and have not been back into into my desk since, since one year exactly, actually. Uh. I same. I started well, kind of. I started my new job in, in at, at a PR firm like three weeks after the pandemic started. So I don't know what my office. I don't know what my office looks like. I have no idea where I'm sitting. I mean, they might not even let me yeah. into the building when it comes time to let everybody because they're like, I don't think you work here. Um, so <laughs> shifting away from from the pandemic for a bit, as a as a Boricua, as a Latina in journalism, you know what. What has been your experience as a woman of color in the journalism field? For the most part, um, I feel I'm so attached to my mission of, of, you know, so aware of being a Latina and being a journalist in these spaces. And that's a mission that completely... You know, it's what wakes me up in the morning. It's what why I wake up in the morning, why I go to work. It's 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 something that fuels me and drives me very much. And you know, a lot of times um, it can feel you know a little bit like I was saying earlier, overwhelming feeling that you know it's a big responsibility, especially when there are not enough of us. A lot of times you feel like if you fail, then you messed it up for all the folks coming behind you. Um, mm. If you are not good enough, you know, then, you know, am I, am I just going to be pigeonholed, which is another, another concern that a lot of, of journalists of colors of color have when, when they're in the workplace. Um, but I try to, you know, whatever I don't find to be a constructive thought, try to sort of, slowly but surely you know sort of put it aside out of my head and, and focus on what's important right and you know when I was starting it was very evident I think that moving from Puerto Rico to the U.S. I was not only you know learning to be a journalist but also learning to live in this country mm -hmm. um, you know it's it's completely different even though we are a U.S. citizen uh, U.S. territory um, 
you know, Puerto Rico, you know, everything is in Spanish and just the culture is different and you move here and, you know, everything that you're learning is in English and you're like, uh, but, you know, so you're learning new things that you didn't even know about in another language that's not your first language. It's, it's like it was a, a big learning curve. Yeah. And with that transition also came um, the cultural thing. Being in Puerto Rico, for most part, you know, everybody else is Puerto Rican. Everybody else around you, if you live in a certain neighborhood, has your same experience, more or less. Mm -hmm. Here in the U.S., especially in a place like New York, it wasn't like that. Um, so that's where I understood, you know, how Puerto Ricans in this country, in the U.S., are viewed differently. You know, like in Puerto Rico, I was like, okay, we're just Puerto Rican, we're, mm -hmm. you know, whatever. And here it was, it was different. And, and sort of the grappling with that, what that meant and, and how to, you know, how to not get offended by that and mm -hmm. find ways to mitigate that. You know, that was a big reason why I went into, I, it, my mission to pursue journalism became stronger because I was like, journalism can be a tool to inform audiences about Puerto Rico. And maybe next time who the Puerto Rican that comes here, you know, doesn't have to deal with such a big level of oblivion or, or ignorance from, from their peers here in the mainland. Um, so, so in that sense, it was in the beginning, it was tougher because you're figuring out all those things at the same time. Once you start figuring those things out and you're in a workplace, you're able to identify things and you know how to defend yourself and you know who to talk to. Mm. Also creating a network of other Latino journalists, other Puerto Rican journalists that have maybe um, done it before you and create that support system and ask for advice and see that, you know, if they did it, why can't I? Um, so, so literally a, a combination of all those things as time progresses has made, you know, my experience in, in journalism and in newsrooms actually a very empowering one so far. Have you ever had a moment in a newsroom where, you know, you are very passionate about something and you're trying to, you know, state your case as to why something should be covered? Um, have you ever felt like, your voice is just disregarded or just wasn't heard in a newsroom space? In the beginning, definitely. When I was interning that you're like in that position that you, you're you not only, you know, Puerto Rican, but you're super young and you're a mm. woman. And, and like, yeah. it felt, it felt like, you know, especially, you know, trying to follow the advice I was given of becoming an expert in something I was passionate about to the point that people would eventually call me for, for those reasons. You know, I was very serious when I was an intern, the debt crisis in Puerto Rico blew up. Mm -hmm. It was around 2015. And I was in a newsroom as an intern and I was like, guys, we have to do this. And, 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 and I had already gone to some of the summits I mentioned earlier I have been reporting on it um, in in our student media outlets as well. And, you know, even though I was super young, 
I had done more work than anybody that was in that newsroom to report on that story. Mm-hmm. And, and selling that, you know, like trying to go past that and try to be given a chance was very difficult, especially, you know, in a TV, when I was initially pursuing TV, the, the time, you know, it's very, very well, like it's super planned, you know, mm-hmm. the, whatever time they use for TV, and it's very difficult sometimes to get stuff on TV or sometimes you get a green lid, you produce the segment and then something happens in the middle of the show and it gets cut, it gets floated and then all your work, then no one is ever going to see it. So also yeah. that was a time for me that I was like, maybe TV journalism is not for me. It is not the best way that I can use or that I can accomplish what I'm trying to accomplish in this profession. So I started exploring other mediums like radio and writing and and writing in English, you know, becoming more confident with with writing in English. Um, and and eventually that's where I landed, you know, that part part of feeling silenced or feeling like it was difficult for my voice to be heard in the newsroom early on define a lot you know my search for for the mediums that i thought could allow me to express that voice and that journalism and that knowledge so in a way it sort of used it in my favor i mm-hmm. guess if, if we could say thinking back to what we were talking about earlier it's, i think this really speaks to the importance of having a, a diverse uh not only a diverse newsroom but an equitable and inclusive one um because what might seem as a uh, small story that no one really cares about might actually hold a lot of weight and resonate with readership. Um, and, and look, using the Puerto Rican population as an example, we're talking about close to 6 million Boricuas that are just here in the mainland. So as an example, with like, let's say NBC News, um, you know, that's, that's potentially five to six million readers that you could attract. I mean, my gosh, how happy would NBC News to see be to have that many uh, clicks on, a, on an article? But I mean, that just getting uh, a quarter of that is a huge readership. There is a craving for for Puerto Rico news, at least from what I see and, and looking at what gets shared on social media. So if you have more people that can speak to the importance of an article in a, or a news story in a newsroom, it can really have a ripple effect where you're you're seeing stories covered that otherwise haven't been or or aren't currently being covered by traditional media. We notice it too. And yeah. that's why, and I was so grateful even back in 2018 when, you know, they that the editor at NBC Latino didn't have to, you know, hey, you know, I, I want you to actually focus on on the Puerto Rico recovery. You're going to be covering other things, but mm-hmm. that's like, I want you to to continuously do stories on that and go to the island every every few months. And and you know that's yes, that's what all of us want. And that's and that's you know the fact that she was able to not only editorially see, hey, this is important, also, you know, hey, this is important, and there's an audience hungry for that. I think if Maria showed anything, was that how hungry, especially are the six million Puerto Ricans living in, in the mainland, mm-hmm. are for for content about about their island. In, in a way, you know, in a way that touches on the nuances, not just, you know, sort of like the the go and leave 
the parachute yeah, type type of reporting, but deep and depth reporting and also in a bilingual way because we have puerto ricans that speak spanish we have puerto ricans that speak english we speak spanglish mm -hmm. you know it's 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 endless the possibility the possibilities to to service that audience yeah no definitely and I, I like what you said earlier in our conversation about you know having that balance because you're going to have people that are interested in the news that are coming to it with a wealth of context um, or even even a minimal amount of context and people that may be just encountering this news for the first time mm -hmm. that may not identify as Puerto Rican, but are interested in Puerto Rico issues. Um, so walking that tightrope, that, that fine balance of making it, you know, meaningful for people, regardless of, you know, whatever their touch point is. <laughs> We're going to take a quick pause for the cause, pero no se muevan porque when we come back, we're going to talk to Nicole about her recent reporting on two opposing bills in Congress that seek to find a solution to the issue of Puerto Rico's status. Stay with us. We want to take this moment to say thank you again for listening. When you download our podcast or subscribe to the podcast itself, that makes a world of difference. So gracias for taking your time to listen to us. We also want to take this time to thank the sponsor of today's episode. This episode would not be possible without the generous support of the Puerto Rican Cultural Center. The Puerto Rican Cultural Center, located at 2546 West Division Street, right here in Chicago, is a community-based grassroots educational health and cultural services organization founded on the principles of self-determination, self-actualization, and self-sufficiency that is all activist-oriented. For more information on the work they do, give them a visit at their website at prcc-chgo.org. Again, that's prcc-chgo.org. Now, if you or anyone else you know would like to be a sponsor of the Paseo Podcast, please email us at paseopod at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-E-O-P-O-D at gmail.com. Tell them Joshua from Humble Park sent you. You had an article in NBC News that was titled, What's Behind Calls for Puerto Rico Statehood? Here are the four things to know. So I was hoping that you know, we could kind of go through the four things that you shared to just kind of expand a bit more on, on some of the points you were making. So last week, um, Representative Darren Soto, who's Boricua from Florida mm -hmm. and Puerto Rico's resident commissioner, our non-voting member in Congress, Jennifer Gonzalez, introduced this piece of legislation to admit Puerto Rico as a state of the United States. And that comes off the heels of the plebiscito, the plebiscite or referendum that Puerto Rico held along with their general election in November, where statehood won by like 53, 52%. Um, so, you know, this it's important to know that this referendum was not binding. And what that means is that Congress you know, a binding, the day we have a binding referendum, that's going to be a big deal. Because essentially what that means is whatever the people of Puerto Rico decide, Congress will enact. Mm. So it, it's a it's a promise from Congress who ultimately have the last word on the issue of whether Puerto Rico becomes a state or not. 
you know, it's it's them promising, yes, we will act on this as, as you guys vote. Uh, but a non-binding one is just like a survey, really. And a lot of times, you know, these plebiscites have happened many, many times in, in Puerto Rican history. And it often serves as a very effective tool for the pro-statehood people in Puerto Rico, the, the PNP party, like you mentioned, mm-hmm. to mobilize people to, to the polls, to vote and to rally, you know, unlike the United States, the parties in Puerto Rico are divided by their preference of territorial status for Puerto Rico. So that's really the cause that gets voters excited and passionate about the election. Mm. So it was an attempt to sort of say, hey, we're using the results of that referendum in November to advocate in Congress that Puerto Rico should be admitted into a state. So that's the the now. Why now? But then I was like, okay, this is a similar bill that was introduced in 2019 and again in 2018. And similar versions have been introduced before that. So what's really different this time? You know, like we have a party that fiercely and relentlessly advocating for for statehood for Puerto Rico, but they seem to keep using the same tactics regardless of whether they work or not. Yeah. Um, So that's why I, I was like, okay, maybe I can, you know, for people that are learning about statehood now with with this new bill, maybe I can just list four things that they should know, especially, you know, because if you look at the press conference of, of the pro-statehood, um, uh, the, the statehood supporters, you know, they try to frame the issue of statehood as an issue of equality, mm. uh, a civil rights issue. And that was surprising to me when I started listening to that shift, which I would say came around the 2016 election. Um, Because growing up in Puerto Rico, what I remember was the Independentista, the Independence Party in Puerto Rico, would use the argument of equality to advocate for, for independence. The Independentistas would say, Tenemos que ser igual que los demás países. We have to be equal to every other country. Why does every country get to be their own country and we cannot? So when I started seeing that shift, I was like, that's interesting. <laughs> Why are mm. they adopting literally the rhetoric and the messaging of the opposite party mm-hmm. now? And, and you know, I was like, okay, maybe, maybe I should try to bring some of this history into the forefront for people that are learning about about the issues of, of statehood and the territorial um, tensions, the, the territorial debacles within Puerto Rico and those those um, different visions that exist for the island. So that was another reason why I figured it was important to include that piece as well in the four things to know. Just wanted to comment on this like point you made about uh, parties like Benepe, uh, really leaning into the issue of Puerto Rico status in order to really play into, um, I'd say, you know, people's fears, you know, oh my gosh, if, you know, we're not a part of the United States, we're going to float off into the ocean and never be heard of again. And Puerto Rico will and it's crumble. A very, it's a very easy argument for them yeah. to make because it's been a, more than a hundred years of us being 
part of the United States, mm-hmm. you know, we don't know anything else. <laughs> yeah, 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 so, no, absolutely. So fear mongering, it's, it's very easy, like you say. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, and I mean, and we've seen that here in the mainland. I mean, fear can be a motivator that could turn someone's vote in an in, in elected official's favor. Um, and I did find it interesting that you made this point about uh, using like, like civil rights and like the movement type language and rhetoric around the calls for statehood. Um, and you know, I, I think it's a matter of international, a matter of international importance rather than purely a, a civil rights issue for, for Puerto Rico status. Um, so to hear, you know, a party like the PNP really leaning into that civil rights language, but at the same time, not really putting things on the line, if that makes yeah, sense, I mean, you know. Yeah, and I think you know where where there were where, where I mean, yeah, to a certain extent you can make that argument. But when the argument starts crumbling a little bit, is when you try to ask questions about how that equality would mm-hmm. look like. At the end of the day, you know, Puerto Rico is not just gonna vote for statehood, and then the next day. Congress is going to ratify it. And then, wow, boom, we are a state. Right. Uh, there's going to be a transition period. And the transition period, you know, it's, it's important for people want to know what's going to happen in that transition period. And, and there hasn't been a meaningful discussion that, that gives people, that paints people a picture of how life during that transition period will look like. And especially on an island that has just faced crisis after crisis, that's important. They mm-hmm. want to know, you know, what what tomorrow is going to be like if if they vote, regardless of what their ideals are. They they want to know, you know, if they're going to be able to to put food on their table, if their taxes are going to change, mm-hmm. if they're, you know, maybe whatever whatever it is, what's going to happen with the debt. Yeah. So. So in terms of, of, I think that, that, you know, as Puerto Ricans continue grappling with this question, that's probably what I foresee that that's going to happen, that people are going to be demanding more answers as to how these transition processes are going to look like, regardless of what the outcome is for, for the island. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, there was a, a Washington Post article that I think we mentioned him earlier in our conversation, Julio Varela. Um, he had written this and he had made this like civil rights, questioning like the civil rights language. And I think he had something like, you know, people conducting acts of civil disobedience, you know, going back into Puerto Rico's history, uh, you know, yeah. sacrificed a lot, you know, died for what they felt was a, a noble cause of civil rights. Um, and that, you know, he was making the point that, you know, I'm not really seeing that same type of energy, not saying that people that are going for statehood should die. You know, and he wasn't saying that it was just comparing the, the the movement, the mentality, the energy, the organizing that that was going into the um, addressing Puerto Rico status. And that, you know, he wasn't really seeing that. And I feel like that really resonated with me because I look at the press conference and I'm like, OK, this is uh, essentially this act is like a yes, no vote. Um, yeah. you know, I don't really see a lot of energy for it. I understand the, the referendum. Um, but you, you look at the, the energy around this and Puerto Ricans, if they feel strongly about something, will organize. We saw that with the protest for Ricardo Rosario, like where, where is that energy in this conversation around like statehood? If statehood is such a big, it has such overwhelming support and it's such a big civil rights issue. 
you know, where, where, where is energy? Just, just not seeing it. So. And, and, and I would add to that, you know, if you want to frame an issue like statehood as a civil rights issue, you know, you can't, you can't talk about civil rights without talking about the legacy of colonialism and mm-hmm. confronting that in, in the island. Yeah. And regardless of, of, you know, even the most realistic person, you know, when they're sort of, you know, deciding between these two, three questions of, of what Puerto Rico should be, you know, that's part of the equation. Even if they say, you know what, I just look at the debt crisis, I look at, at the recovery, I look and I love my island, but I don't see any other option but statehood. Mm-hmm. Even admitting that, you know, it's also admitting sort of the culmination of that colonization process that started more than 100 years ago. Yeah. And what does that do to to a person's, you know, ability to to choose an outcome for for the island and and grappling with that that's Mm -hmm. that's painful you can be realistic but you know the truth can also hurt sometimes so i think that being more sensitive to to that history and and the generations of of pain and tensions that are underlying um you know in puerto rico because of that need to be addressed as as we continue talking about how what Puerto Rico, what territorial status Puerto Rico will have in the long term. And I think that's also something that that's been missing for from the rhetoric so far. Yeah, well said. Um, I'm going to skip a, I'm going to skip uh, the why statehood because I feel like you eloquently touched we on that already. It. Ba-bam. <laughs> um, I'm going to skip over the opposing legislation because that's going to be in our follow up, the follow up article. But um, where do the voices of Puerto Rico's independence advocates stand in all of this converse and in, in, in this conversation as a whole? I mean, with the with the statehood bill, nowhere. I think that mm. that what they've been they've been very deliberate about just hyper-focusing on those plebiscites and whatever majority they're able to get, which is true, you know, you know, for a long time, the dominating parties in the island are the statehood party and the status quo, which is basically believes in the Estado Libre Asociado, the the territorial status that Mm -hmm. Puerto Rico currently has, that allows them to have self-governance, but they're still a territory of the United States. But, you know, throughout the years, while the Independence Party has been, you know, not part of the majority, you know, you have to understand why. And and in a in a Puerto Rico that, you know, especially at the t- in the time of the Cold War, with what was happening nationwide and, and the United States already having boots on, on the island. You know, they really did everything they could, the U.S. government and the Puerto Rican government, to really repress that that movement and not allow it to to continue to grow. So you saw, um, you mentioned earlier La Brega. They had a wonderful episode about Las Carpetas, which was a government-sanctioned um, surveillance um, program that literally just followed um, independentistas around. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's one of the only cases in the world where those files were returned to the people after the program was deemed illegal. And, you know, we have the murders of the Cerro Maravilla, which were, you know, um, law enforcement officials from the Puerto Rican government that killed independentistas and tried to cover it. 
you have laws like La Ley Mordaza, the mm-hmm. GOG law that like avoid that didn't. Let I couldn't be doing fly. this in my background. I yeah, have my Puerto Rican exactly. flag up. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and it was a way to. It was just continue, continue efforts to to really not allow that movement to to have its moment or to to garner people and, and make their point. And and also, you know, we have to understand that as we try to to confront why is it that people say they don't want independence? It's like, well, do you even allow them to think about it? Do you even mm-hmm. allow that to be a possibility? We have to reckon with that. I always remember an interview I did a few years ago, because even growing up in the island, you know, it was always, especially with the elders, the abuelitos and, and the tios, um, whenever you spoke about that movement, it was, there was, I had the sense growing up in the island that there was some sort of fear associated with that movement. Mm-hmm. And years later, when I became a journalist, I remember interviewing a woman at a art show and there was, it was a piece that, that had a little like casita from like the little campos in Puerto Rico. And there was a bombing going on behind. Mm-hmm. And it was a bombing that occurred in, in the town of Hayuya in Puerto Rico. And, and I was talking to her because it was a story. Her son, her son had painted the, the piece of art, but it was something she lived as a child in Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. And, and she was like, yeah, you know, they were trying to to get rid of some independentistas that were there. They bombed our town. And, you know, I was like, I wanted them out of my town because I didn't want them to bomb my town again. She was five at the time of that incident. And even years later, as an abuela herself, you know, that 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 fear, that trauma was still associated with that ideal. And that really struck me because it sort of gave me a tangible example to sort of like what I was sensing growing up. And I had never put any any of those two together until until I did that interview a few years mm. ago. And I always think about that, you know, as a as a as a nation, Puerto Rico has not had enough space to heal you know, these traumas and ease these tensions and really listen to each other and, and connecting those experiences. And I, I really think that if, if as, a, as, as an island that occurs, I think that Puerto Rico will be empowered in a way we haven't even seen yet, even more than in the protest when, when Ricardo Rosselló got ousted and even more than in the protest that got La Marina de Vieques out. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and again, both of those examples speaks to if Puerto Ricans want to organize around something, they will do it. The, the energy is there. Exactly. Um, so I want to go to the third point, uh, the, th- the third thing you should know, and also transition this to this follow up article. Um, I believe it was uh, uh, AOC Velasquez Puerto Rico bill sets needed path to decolonization progressive say. That's the title of the article. So if people listening, type that in the Google, find it. It's worth a read. <laughs> um, and this ties into the third thing you that you said people should know in, in your previous article. Um, so what is this? What is the opposing legislation to uh, the the Puerto Rico Statehood Admissions Act? Well, in a nutshell, what the um, Ocasio-Cortez Velasquez bill tries to do is, okay, we're going to have the people of Puerto Rico elect mm-hmm. 
a few members of a commission that are gonna meaningfully evaluate different um, paths, whatever that is, a path to statehood, a path to independence, a path to a uh, territory status we haven't even thought about. And, and, and really, as, like really create a plan, like, like, you know, almost like, like a roadmap for people. So you're not only voting on the elite ideal, but hopefully you will be voting on the whole process. So mm -hmm. you will have an idea of how it would look like from the moment that you vote to that transition period to the moment that Puerto Rico changes status. Um, it's very, very basic. You know, there's there's mm -hmm. other stuff in that world, but in a nutshell, that's the most important thing that they are advocating for for elected members to create a commission um, to meaningfully be dedicated to to studying those things and bring it to the people, yeah. um, which is different from from the statehood one because statehood is just you know okay yes let's no. make it a state yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, I cut you off, but I hear you. Yeah, yeah. I hear you. I hear you. Yeah, the oppo uh, yeah opposed to the uh, the Puerto Rico Statehood Admissions Act. Simple yes, no vote. Statehood yes for statehood, no for statehood. Whereas something like the PR Self Determination Act, it's kicking it old school, calling for a convention with delegates. Um, and to your point, like it's about we want to figure out what's the best what's the best path forward for Puerto Rico status. Um, let's decide that let any, let, even, even if it's something that maybe a portion does not agree with and they're advocating for a different type of, of, of status, we just need something different than the current relationship that exists right now. Whatever you, what Puerto Rico yeah. status is now, we need to change it one way, shape or form. So let's get everybody together. Let's debate this and let's figure out a path forward as opposed to, uh, an act that is introduced in Congress and the Puerto Rican people don't really have uh, a, in the room where it happens type of say in, in, in Puerto Rico's future. Um, and also, it's, it seems like an opportunity to meaningfully explore options, yeah, not just vote definitely. because a party told you to vote for a certain mm -hmm. thing, right? Yeah. Um, so so it's, it's also an opportunity there to, to have people you know, question even their own ideals that maybe they've had for many decades. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think that at the moment becomes not necessarily closer, but it becomes more evident that the status, the territorial status Puerto Rico has is not as good as we thought it was. I think that growing up in, in Puerto Rico, especially older generations, truly believed that they had the best of both well, both worlds mm -hmm. you know and now facing the debt crisis the hurricane crisis political unrest you name it um it, it has become a lot more evident that you know it's not the best of both worlds the relationships are often one-sided yeah. and and there's a lot of inequality that that puts puerto rico at a big disadvantage so as that becomes more evident, I think that, you know, the moment of the status, the territorial status of Puerto Rico changing, one could argue is also becoming closer. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I mean, I was doing, uh, I was reading this political article and it was, it was talking about 
the Statehood Act. Um, it had quotes from Representative Darren Soto, uh, and it, it sounded like he was taking a little bit of a swipe at AOC and Nydia over in New York. Um, he had said something like, "Oh yeah, did you read this?" Okay, yeah, because he had said something like, "You know, there might be like I think it's like shifting sands. There might be shifting sands amongst New Yorkers, but there's solid support elsewhere." And I think the article, the the support in support of that quote. Uh, was just saying, you know, including 15 Democrats and Republicans from Florida. If I hear about, um, you know, what's going on in Florida and how the diaspora that's based in Florida feels about something, I think that's valid. I think that's worth giving a voice to and having a discussion around. But when you look at the the totality of the number of people in the diaspora, we're talking about close to 6 million Boricuas here. You look at the population in Florida, while it is like in second place and giving New York a run for their money with like 1.1 million, right? It's like they're like neck and neck practically at this point. The, the, the New Yorkans from New York have been retiring in Florida. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> Florida. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's the shifting sands. Um, and so you look at that, I mean, that, that that's not even 20% of the diaspora's voice, just looking at Florida. And then you factor in the 48% of people that did not vote for statehood in the referendum. And the math just doesn't add up to go so hard for a bill that only has one option on the table. So just like pe for people listening, like think about the math involved around the of, around this call for Puerto Rican statehood. And You'll start. I, I would hope that you'd start to think like me and and start leaning towards something like the PR Self Determination Act. Now I know we don't have all the details on it. I know in twenty last year uh, there were some details released on this act, but I believe it's it's in the process of revision and there's there's going to be a new form of it presented. I, I want to say in the next one or two weeks. I don't know if Nicole, if you have any insight yeah, to share on that, I mean, but that'd be it helpful. Seems what I had was at least in the first this term, so not at the end of the year, but the first half of the year, it mm -hmm. will be it will be reintroduced. They may be trying to to speed things up, given you know that that it has between the statehood bill and then all the advocates that that were in favor of the media AOC bill that was introduced last year, saying like. No, 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 no. We still support the the Self Determination Act. Mm. You know, coming. They they did. They sent a letter to um, Schumer and Pelosi right after the the statehood bill was introduced, mm -hmm. saying, "Hey, listen, please. You know, don't just don't just pay attention to the new flashy thing. Please still consider this this other new bill." And they state the reasons why. Mm. So. There's a lot of momentum in the conversation currently. So who knows? Maybe they're trying to speed things up. But but definitely, definitely first half of the year, we should see the reintroduction of that bill happening. All right. Definitely something to, to stay tuned to. Um, and I will say this. I don't know if you know this, Nicole, but the Paseo podcast actually signed on to that letter. So very proud to be a part of those other groups. Like, let's get every let's get all the seats. I'm a big fan of like. You got to have all the seats at the table. If you're if you if you don't have a seat at the table, then you're on the menu, and that's not fair. Um, so I'm all for a more equitable process if it's out there. So looking forward to see what these the details, the official details that come out in the PR Self Determination Act. Yeah, um, and we'll see how much support it gets because that's yeah, the other tricky thing, right? You mm -hmm. know, it's 
if if it, it we can we can run into the same thing that happened with the statehood bills the many similar versions of the statehood bill that we've seen you know mm-hmm. they don't gather enough support if they don't become a priority somehow then you sort of get stuck in in the same sort of limbo again and you need to try again the next the next term so so we'll see that that's really going to be a big um determinant in 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 the whole process how how many sponsors or how how diverse those sponsors are and see if they can sort of reinstate a sense of urgency to that um issue once again yeah no definitely stay tuned a stay tuned moment um for sure i'm super curious to see where those pieces fall um, well, Nicole, you've been super generous with your time and, and we definitely are going over here. Uh, but I did want to ask you two more like rapid fire questions. These are questions we ask our guests all the time. Um, one was actually a listener question that I just really like because I like Puerto Rican food. Um, and selfishly, I want to know what the best spots are uh, across the diaspora and even throughout the world, um, not just here in the United States. Um, so just I'm going to ask you the same one. I mean, you're in New York. What is like your favorite Boricua restaurant to go to? If you have more than one, that's totally fine. Let's hear them. What do you got? Uh, um, my go to restaurants that happen to be near where I live in Queens, which mm-hmm. is great, is one called the Freaking Rican. And I love them because they have pasteles and it's very, it's a good day if you can find <laughs> pasteles when you live in the States. So they make very good pasteles and yeah, I normally order like lecho, arroz con gandule. Mm. They have sorullitos too, which I love. Mm. And the pasteles, obviously. So the freaking weekend. And I recently discovered another one called Beso NYC. I really like how they make their mofongo. So if I'm feeling like a mofongo kind of day, then I would order from Beso NYC. Last question I have for you, Nicole. Uh, We ask all our guests this, like I said earlier. Um, So I'm going to ask you the same one. Obsessions. What are you obsessed with right now? I know we talked about a few things before we started recording, but for our audience, what are you obsessed with right now? It can be related to Puerto Rican culture, unrelated to Puerto Rican culture, whatever it is. Um, What are you obsessed with? Uh, we mentioned it earlier, and it's the the podcast La Brega. I yeah. recently finished it, and it's it's so good. I have not heard the Spanish version yet. Mm-hmm. I may actually just listen to it, just curious as to you know how the different experiences might be mm-hmm. uh, from from hearing it in English. But there's also a specific episode that actually Julito produced about the. Um, the Olympic Games, where yes. Puerto Rico won against the United mm-hmm. States, specifically, you know, reviving that moment when Carlos Arroyo took his jersey and with the with the Puerto Rico name in the shirt, mm-hmm. just like showed it like this and that photo. And I was just like, wow, I haven't thought about that in so long. And I remember, yeah. like, I remember being in school. I remember everybody talking about it. I remember everybody trying to get their jerseys. It was just so nice to revive that moment after listening to to that episode. So for everybody out there, if you haven't listened to it, La Brega podcast, seven episodes. They're amazing. I was they also did the Levitan one, which oh, was right. great to listen to because really it, it resonated a little bit with my family history as well. Um, you know, I had I had tias that bought homes in Levitown and then had ended up leaving 
like like in the piece says, they explain why a lot of, of those Puerto Ricans ended up leaving um, to the United States. Mm. And it was just like that moment that you're just like, wow, I sort of understand my existence and where I come from a little bit better. Yeah. And this is from someone that covers Puerto Rico often. <laughs> um oh that's high that's saying that's saying something too that's high praise yeah but i mean it's great to be on the receiving end of that not always Mm, thinking how to make other people feel that but just you know that there's other colleagues out there doing amazing work that can make me feel and hopefully other puerto ricans feel like this as well okay nicole uh you've been so generous with your time and your candid thoughts really appreciate you being on the show again um for listeners that want to keep up with you um, do you have a website, social media? How can people stay up to date with what you're doing? Well, if you want news updates, normally my Twitter is my go-to at NicoleMarie underscore A. And if you're more interested in just the daily stuff I do in New York or whatever, you can follow me on Instagram at NicolaCeredoRots. And you can follow NBC Latino. Um, NBC Latino on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can also go to NBCLatino.com. And it specifically goes to the stories that we produce as a vertical for just NBCNews.com for everything else in the news. Again, appreciate you being on. Thank you for being on the Paseo podcast today. No, thank you for your time. Thanks to Nicole Acevedo for being on the show today. As a reminder, you can watch our interview with her on our YouTube channel this Monday. Just type in Paseo Podcast and we'll pop right up. Stay tuned next week for our conversation with Professor of Law at Iowa University, Cesar F. Rosado Marsan. We're going to talk to him about the Jones Act, labor law, unions, and unionization efforts at the Amazon warehouse in Alabama. As always, if you want to pitch a story idea, nominate yourself or someone else for an interview, or share a news story you'd like us to discuss in the show, visit our website, paseomedia.org, to do just that. See you next week. Without our awesome guests, this podcast would not be possible. And without you, our listeners, this would not be possible. So we really appreciate you listening. If you want to reach out to the show, Connect with us by visiting our website, paseomedia.org, emailing us at paseopodcast at gmail.com, and following us at paseopodcast on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a tip, want to pitch a story, or send us a compliment, we'd love to hear from you. Thanks for downloading this episode, and see you next week. Cuídate.